It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Jason Breifel. Uh, I'm here today with uh, Neil Miller of Ultra High uh, Materials. Uh, she also served um, in the Department of Edu- uh, Energy as the Undersecretary for Energy and Nuclear Security, the COO of the Department of Energy, as well as with roles at the Office of Management and Bu- Budget. Also in the studio with me is Bill Valdez, the president of the Senior Executives Association, uh, who also held many executive roles uh, at the DOE. Um, joining us by phone um, are Chris Edwards. He is the um, uh, director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute and the editor of the downsizinggovernment.org uh, website, as well as Ron Sanders, uh, senior vice president and fellow at Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, we'll be joined in the second half of the program by uh, Rachel Gessler of the Heritage Foundation. And uh, today what we'll be talking about are uh, the new administration, changes that are coming to the federal workforce, the federal government, uh, in the first half of the program, talking about the budgetary side of that that equation in those conversations, and the uh, second half of the program, talking about the personnel side of the equations and how the uh, people who are working at uh, government agencies will effectuate these proposed uh, and potential changes to the, to the budgetary situation for the government. Uh, First of all, I'd just like to welcome all of the guests and thank you all for uh, joining us today. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, and, Jason. And uh, I'd like to, to start by uh, going to Chris to uh, provide some perspective on uh, what we may see out of this new administration in the new Congress uh, in terms of budgetary priorities. Um, and there's been reports in the media that uh, the administration appears to be embracing many ele- elements of a, a Heritage Foundation a Blueprint for Reform um, uh, uh, report, and I know that you've written heavily about these these types of, of uh, topics in terms of uh, how to uh, restructure the uh, government's priorities on the budget side. Well, you know, the broad picture, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, is uh, the, the new president uh, has some very ambitious uh, budgetary plans. He has a very large uh, tax cut he's trying to uh, tee up in uh, Congress, and uh, Republicans in Congress are very eager to do uh, a big tax cut early on. Uh, there's a lot of concern that the tax cut would uh, lose the government uh, uh, a lot of money and push up uh, deficits uh, greatly, uh, and uh, because the they're, they're not the Republicans are not as interested it seems in cutting spending or at least they don't have as much of a detailed plan on cutting spending as they do on the tax side. Uh, uh, incoming President Trump also has plans to increase defense spending. He's talked about a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. So, you know, Trump's numbers so far don't really add up. It, it's true that his uh, his new budget director, uh, or at least it looks like the likely budget director, Mike Mulvaney, is very much a fiscal conservative, 
But there are other uh, members, it looks, of, his, uh, of the new administration that aren't so eager to cut spending. And, and a good example of this uh, is the, uh, the new Secretary of Energy, uh, Rick Perry, uh, in his confirmation hearing, I guess, uh, last week. He showed absolutely no interest in uh, cutting anything in the Department of Energy. And yet other uh, new members of the administration uh, are talking about cutting some uh, uh, some elements of the Department of Energy. So I think there's going to be a lot of internal struggles in the new administration. Um, I hope that the new administration, if they cut taxes, they match it with uh, spending reforms. Uh, uh, we know, of course, that the biggest problem with the federal budget is the uh, the growth in entitlement spending in coming years. Uh, President Trump uh, uh, has has generally not talked reforming entitlement programs. So there's a lot of tensions here that it, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out in in, in coming months. Thanks, Chris, for, for helping set the stage for us um, on, on that. And I think it will be interesting how those trade-offs are, are pursued and discussed. I uh, uh, would like to, to go to Neil and talk about, you know, at, at, at both the OMB level and then uh, at the agency level, um, you know, as these priorities uh, and, and budget levels are being set, what, what kind of conversations are going on? How, how are folks uh, uh, discussing this and working through this? Um, yeah, I think that um, certainly at OMB, they will start by running scenarios of what happens when you uh, cut at some percentage and another percentage on top of that and probably another percentage on top of that so that they can begin to give a full picture to the White House about, um, you know, specific programs and what happens to them under different budget scenarios. So if, for example, they're asking for a 5% cut across, they want to know specifically what's going to break. And the same at, at any other percentage points. And I, I suspect they're because people are trying to be bold typically at the beginning of administration, um, they may be looking at things as high as a 20% cut. I think they are um, probably also looking to see if they can hit the ground running by taking some piece of the rest of fiscal 17. So they're probably running some scenarios. What happens if we hold back or, or we um, or we take a, a less once the Budgets are actually, we're assuming that the, there will be appropriation bills um, passed in um, April, maybe it's an omnibus, uh, passed in the April timeframe when the current CR runs out. Um, they may be looking at taking a cut there and, and what begins to happen and, and what kind of an impact do you have. And then building off of that as you as uh, the administration starts to build that 18 budget, which they have to be doing right now, you know, where will they be jumping off from? Um, so I think OMB is looking at that. And from the agency perspective, they're going to run the same scenarios. Certainly, they're going to run scenarios that OMB asked them to do. But I suspect internally, they are um, already looking at what are the impacts on different uh, programs at different scenarios. Yeah, and I think Chris is absolutely right, you know, that the uh, incoming administration has put forth a, a slew of proposals from tax policy to spending to, you know, national security uh, issues that are at best contradictory um, and will result in a significant tension, you know, at the agencies in terms of budgetary priorities. Um, it's the role of the career civil service at the uh, agencies to help the administration puzzle this out. 
And from my conversations with folks within the agencies, they're currently doing that. You know, there are a lot of uh, what we call data calls going on uh, between the uh, folks from the Trump administration that are at the agencies to the uh, programs, asking them, you know, for preliminary information. You know, if we if we cut this program, what is the impact, you know, on our mission effectiveness and uh, you know, or you know who, and this really gets to the the crux of the of the question: whose ox are we goring? You know, when we make these particular cuts, um, you know, Lisa Murkowski uh, was quoted in the paper recently uh, that she was surprised that uh, rural airports were on the chopping block. Um, that's not a good thing. You don't want to surprise a senator, you know, with with that kind of information. Uh, and I think those kinds of situations are playing out throughout the federal government. Um, but as Neil pointed out, people are planning, and they're going from doomsday scenarios, you know, if we have to close a program, all the way up to, you know, 5, 10, 20 percent cuts in the programs, and then how do we respond to those? Thanks, Bill. I'd like to, Ron, uh, what is your perspective on this? You've, you've served at many different agencies and, and, and have seen some of these scenarios play out through the years. Uh, anything else to add that we haven't covered yet? Sure, Jason, and, and uh, let me start by emphasizing what you just said. Uh, look, I think we all ought to take a deep breath here. Um, in many respects, if not most, we've been there and done this. Uh, I don't think we should forget that for the last several years, um, every agency has been under the threat of sequestration, and they have been doing uh, sequestration scenario planning um, as a result. Uh, some of those cuts may not be as draconian as people are um, expecting, but um, we've done the modeling, and, um, and I believe most agencies are, are prepared. Uh, let me speak to the technical issues. I'll stay away from the political ones. Um, first, I think there's plenty of fodder for uh, uh, fairly substantial reductions in the federal government that don't do harm to the citizen or the taxpayer. All you got to do is look at GAO's list of duplicative programs to start. Uh, Politico had a great article um, earlier in the week to the same effect. Here are all of the programs that overlap, that are redundant, that are obsolete, or that are ineffective. And uh, my hope is that agencies are starting with that or that the new OMB, with the career staff, who is well aware of these things, uh, um, they're beginning to take a look. Uh, I do think we need a new set of tools to take on um, this particular goal. We did a study, uh, Jason, a couple of years ago with the Partnership for Public Service called Smart Cuts, uh, Lessons Learned from the Budget Wars of the 90s. And one of the things that we, uh, we observed was that when it comes to deep cuts, uh, two painful lessons um, should be taken into account. One, if you do it by what we used to call in the Pentagon salami slicing, uh, equal cuts across the board, that's clearly the least painful way to do it. It's also the least effective. The cut should be programmatic, and we can talk more about that um, in a bit. Uh, secondly, the regular budget process is um, not up to um, the potential cuts of this magnitude. It takes something extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary process. I'll, I'll date myself. I go back to the early 90s when we were in search of the peace dividend in DOD, 
and um, arguably that was one of the most successful efforts, and it, it bridged uh, the Bush 41 administration in the first Clinton administration. So it was, uh, it, it you know, it, it went from Republican to Democrat. Um, and we had to conjure up an extraordinary process. At the time, we call it defense management review. Um, there have been other names for other similar processes, but it has to be something different than the regular budget process because, as we know, the regular budget process tends to focus on the margins, a little bit here, a little bit there a little bit of cut, a little bit of increase. And uh, if we're going to do this programmatically, and if we're going to do this in a way that makes sense, that doesn't do harm, sort of the bureaucrat's version of the Hippocratic Oath, then I think um, those are two lessons that we need to take into account. Great. Thank you so much, Ron, for for those excellent points. We're going to pick up this conversation after our first break uh, from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Uh, we're talking about uh, changes potentially in budgetary and personnel priorities for the, for the new administration. And I uh, want to come back to the conversation they were having uh, before the break. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ron Sanders from Booz on Hamilton mentioned that the, the Government Accountability Office uh, is uh, does identify areas of uh, duplication, overwrap, um, high-risk programs and other things uh, that, that are out there that are potential targets for improving the efficiency uh, of the government. And uh, Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute, um, interested in your thoughts on um, how informative those types of reports uh, have been to your work as, as you've uh, explored this concept of downsizing government and uh, effective spending. Well, the GAO reports and uh, IG reports on uh, federal departments have been uh, are, are crucial, and uh, you know I strongly support beefing up the IGs and beefing up uh, uh, GAO uh, capabilities to, uh, to 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 churn out these reports on uh, government duplication uh, and the like. Of course, Congress often does not act on GAO recommendations, and I sure wish there were more oversight hearings in Congress uh, taking these. GAO report seriously and uh, and actually trying to enact some of the uh, reforms. On that said, I, I agree with some of your other guests that there are uh, areas here that I I, I, I do see uh, some forward movement on. I'll give you know one of them is budget process reform. Someone uh, mentioned that both the House and Senate Budget Committees uh, have chairmen very interested in uh, major budget process reform. It's clear the trains are not running on time now. Uh, we need a more rational budget process on Capitol Hill. Another area where I think there there could well be reforms is on Pentagon reforms. Uh, we had a big Washington Post expose a couple months ago about the huge amount of overhead uh, in, uh, in the Pentagon. 
Uh, I think, uh, you know, if Trump wants to uh, a more effective uh, a defense uh, and security uh, forces, uh, he's got to he's got to take on Pentagon uh, reforms and cut out some of the bureaucracy. A lot of your listeners may not realize that the uh, the uh, while the uniform military has uh, shrunk substantially in size over uh, the last decade or two, the civilian part of the Pentagon is enormous, and uh, I think that there are um, some real reforms there. Another thing Republicans are talking about on Capitol Hill, I think that would greatly simplify the budget, would be converting a lot of these aid-to-state programs into block grants, so things like food stamps and Medicaid uh, and the like. Uh, I think it, uh, if we converted these things to block grants, we'd give the states more flexibility. It would be a lot easier for the federal government to budget because with a fixed block grant going to the states, uh, federal uh, uh, budget planners could, could look ahead and plan exactly uh, for how big some of these entitlement programs are going to be in the budget. I must say, you know, one one thing that I think is going to keep the pressure on here is that uh, deficits are expected uh, to rise up to a trillion dollars again uh, within a few years. Uh, we're going to probably uh, be in a rising interest rate environment, and the more that interest rates are high, uh, the higher the interest costs for the federal government, the more it squeezes out other spending in the federal budget. So I think the pressure will be on here uh, for the new administration and Congress to find savings wherever it can. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested for the thoughts of the panelists on on how you know Congress and the administration will and and can they work to bridge those gaps? As you mentioned, Chris, many of these areas have been identified for some time, but but haven't always necessarily been acted on. Neil, so I think that it's an interesting thing to consider. You know, what are the goals? Is it to come up with money by by cutting programs? To come up with money? Is it to have the federal government? run better than it does right now and do it that way by cutting money, eliminating programs. Um, in my experience, you can get people's attention when you cut a budget. It's an, it's an old saw I learned in my first go around at OMB when I was, you know, at the beginning of my career. Um, you get their attention, but it's, it's, a, it's not really a way to manage anything. You're not going to get better performance simply by cutting a budget. And uh, by the same token, you don't necessarily get bad management because someone has a large budget. So I think it's important to understand what are the goals. You're not going to come up with enough to balance the budget by cutting out discre uh, the non-defense discretionary budget. That's clear. That's, you know, ridiculous. Um, it's, it's a third of all of the spending. So you cut, eliminate all of it. You're still not going to fix the problem. I think it's lots of people in the government who work there now would be thrilled to have it all run better. There are competing interests. There are competing interests when it comes to spending the money and how the money gets spent, and it knows no party. It crosses all lines, and it you know it relates strongly to what people believe, people on the Hill, for example, believe are in their interest to have money spent in their states or in their districts. And it very often is at odds with good management. So I think, you know, people have to understand first, what's the goal? Is it to have the government run better or is it just to come up with some savings? You know, I think one of the things we might be seeing here is uh, an initial um, shock on the part of the Trump administration uh, that government isn't a business and that, um, you know, in a business – 
the chief executive officer is able to make cuts where it's appropriate to introduce efficiencies on a, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, arbitrary, not arbitrary, but, you know, executive level basis. In the federal government, there are so many competing interests who have a stake in the budget uh, that you really cannot try to do uh, efficiencies and uh, budget cutting through the annual budget process. And Ron Sanders is absolutely correct in that regard, that you know the, bu- the annual budgets of the agencies really are plus minus 5, 10%. And as Neil pointed out, you know, the discretionary spending portion of that is, is just not going to help us solve the uh, overall problem. So, you know, you really have to take a long-term view on these things and develop the kinds of uh, strategies that Ron talked about that will have a long-term impact, um, you know, for the federal budget. Uh, Just one minor clarification about something Chris said. You know, he mentioned that the civilian staff at, at the Department of Defense has has gone up dramatically over the past you know few years, and that's actually I don't think correct. I think what we've seen is a dramatic increase in the size of the contracting and consulting uh, workforce at the Department of Defense and other federal agencies. The actual size of the federal government has remained relatively the same since you know the JFK years. And, you know, with some fluctuations here and there. And if you look at it on a a per capita basis, you know, we're actually at the lowest percentage of federal employees to the nation's per capita than we've ever been. So, Jason, uh, uh, let me connect some dots here before we uh, before we break. Um, uh, Going back to something that Bill said, as well as something that, that Neil said. Uh, first, uh, look, we know that for the most part, feds want to see efficient and effective government, and they know where the duplication is, they know where the fad is. Uh, so I think one of the keys to success here moving forward is to engage and embrace them and not assume that um, they're going to hunker down. Uh, I think, uh, as I said, if, if you can uh, energize uh, federal employees, they'll tell you uh, what can and cannot be cut. Uh, I'll again, date myself and speak for myself, um, what's frustrating, and I know it's frustrating to my fellow, uh, former fellow uh, feds, is that um, you can propose all these all you want, but as Bill and Neil pointed out, you have these entrenched interests that uh, thwart and frustrate cuts that, frankly, everybody knows should be made. Uh, we went through this process in, um, in the early 90s with the first BRAC, and there have been several since where Congress has to vote up or down, uh, only because everybody knew that if you voted closure by closure, uh, it would never happen. And many people have talked about a domestic program version of BRAC. I'm not going to advocate that one way or the other, but when it comes to tools and, and developing an extraordinary process, something like that that takes a hard programmatic look, identifies the duplication, I do think there's lots, uh, uh, there's lots of ammunition there. Uh, better to cut those things than to inadvertently cut muscle and, again, hurt um, uh, the, the production of goods and services to citizens. 
Great. Thank, thank you, Ron. I, I want to circle back to, to Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute one last time, because uh, I know you could only join us for half the program this morning, just to kind of offer some reflection on, on what your uh, colleagues just uh, just said and, and perhaps any uh, uh, closing thoughts before we move to our second uh, break here. Yeah, I, I appreciate the clarification about the Pentagon uh, civilian bureaucracy. Actually, I mean, to be a little more specific, if you look at the ratio of the civilian bureaucracy to the uniformed, it has gone up over the last decade. And the chart on the Cato blog about that a month or so ago. So you're right, maybe the overall levels have gone down. They've contracted out more. But the ratio of the civilians to the uniform uh, has gone up. Uh, Your last commentator was absolutely right, too. I think that there's a Trump administration may not realize the depth of the parochial interest in Congress. I mean, just watching a number of the confirmation hearings, uh, just recently the the Ellen Chow, a couple weeks ago, the Ellen Chow uh, confirmation hearing uh, as Secretary of, of Transportation, uh, it's remarkable the some of the big national interests on the agenda here for transportation, and most of the senators ask the most parochial questions about particular small subsidies to their states rather than being concerned about you know the overall national picture and it it really strikes me uh that a lot of these senators members of congress are so small-minded and so parochial i think they've got to get with the program here if we're going to reform the federal government and put aside some of the parochial interests and do some of these major reforms that have been talked about for a long time great uh thank you so much chris for that for that perspective uh again this was uh that was the last words you heard from or from uh, chris edwards the director of tax policy studies at the cato institute and you can uh read more of his writing on downsizing government dot uh, org uh, really appreciate you joining thank the program you. uh this morning uh we're going to move on to our second break uh, you'll be back to fed talk on federal news radio 1500 a.m after a word from our sponsor Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Uh, joined by a panel of guests today, uh, talking about new budgetary priorities for the administration and Congress, as well as uh, how those will affect the workforce um, that'll be responsible for for carrying them out. Um, here in the studio with me is uh, Bill Valdez, the president of the Senior Executives Association, uh, Neil Miller of uh, Ultra High Materials and uh, former OMB and uh, energy executive, uh, as well as uh, Ron Sanders of Booz Allen Hamilton uh, via phone. Uh, I want to shift our conversation a bit to the um, personnel side of the equation. Uh, we spent the first half of the show on, on the budgetary side. Um, you know, the, uh, at the end of the day, the workforce will have to, to carry out these uh, priorities, and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the workforce around uh, areas like 
the uh, the hiring freeze and attrition plans, uh, things of that nature. Um, Ron, uh, I know that you have uh, spoke with folks at Federal News Radio, read some some comments of yours in this about how that works, and uh, curious about your uh, insights into um, how how the workforce is going to manage these changes that that lay ahead. Well, especially if we want to focus on the freeze, um, I'll offer the same counsel that I did uh, in the first half of the program. And that is we ought to take a deep breath. Um, I've talked to a number of uh, chief human capital officers of uh, some of the biggest departments. And, 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 you know, they all have much the same reaction. Uh, A, been there, done that. This isn't the first hiring freeze we've had to deal with. Uh, It's been a while since we've had a government-wide hiring freeze. But if you look um, uh, back over the past two decades, uh, just about every agency has been through it. Defense went through it in the 90s several times. Uh, domestic agencies uh, during the first decade of uh, the 21st century. We've been under the threat of sequestration. So, um, again, the the really smart chief human capital officers um, are looking at this, and uh, they're not panicking. Uh, I think the best news of all, and, and, again, this is consistent with what I'm hearing from them, is that this is temporary. Uh, I really like the carrot-and-stick approach here. Uh, uh, Neil touched on this uh, earlier. I think uh, to get the attention of the bureaucracy, you need an action-forcing event. I think the president's memo is an action-forcing event. I'd worry far more about it if it were of indefinite duration. But uh, the carrot here is the plan that every agency can put together uh, that will, um, it, you know, it, it, it's a downsizing plan. Some people will call it right-sizing. Uh, try to call it like it is. It's a downsizing plan for most uh, agencies. Uh, That said, as we discussed in the first half hour, there's plenty there to cut. There's plenty of duplication. There's plenty of overlapping programs. And I think um, that's uh, that's where I would be focusing, not on the immediate effects of the freeze, although there are some tactical issues that have to be dealt with. What are the exemptions? How do we reallocate from low-priority to high-priority jobs, et cetera? But again, many, if not most, Chicos have been through some variation of this. Mm-hmm. I would be focusing my energies on the plan to put something cogent together uh, so that provides for a glide path that uh, reduces the inefficiencies, doesn't affect frontline mission, doesn't neglect support for that frontline mission. We can come back to that, but I think that's a key point. It's not just about cutting overhead because eventually overhead affects front line. Uh, and uh, I'd get that plan as, uh, approved as quickly as possible so that I'd get some relief to the priest. Great. Great. Thank you, Ron. And uh, I know we just had uh, Rachel Gesler from the Heritage Foundation uh, join us via phone and wanted to get her uh, thoughts and perspective on the uh, the uh, executive order on, on the hiring freeze and the, uh, the mandate for the development of a nutrition plan for the, for the workforce. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. And I apologize if any of this is repetitive since I haven't been on for the first half here. But I think this is a good first step for the president to make. He talked about transforming the way that government works for the people so that it actually is serving them properly. And the freeze in and of itself is not a huge thing. It's, you know, short term. It's only the positions that were open at noon on January 22nd. 
But what is the big thing is the transformation that comes hopefully as a result of that and just increasing the efficiencies, seeing where we have too many people that are maybe doing duplicative things or inefficient um, performances, or maybe there's areas that the federal government shouldn't really be doing what it is, and the state and local governments would be better doing that, or even the private sector. So it's just about getting the government serving the people better, using their taxpayers better. And I think over time, this could translate into, you know, tens, even hundreds of billions of dollars in savings for taxpayers if we get the government doing what it should be doing. I, I completely agree. This is Bill Valdez with the Senior Executive Association. And our primary concern is that uh, we need to, you know, go into this process with an eye towards uh, making positive change um, in the uh, federal workforce. And it is an opportunity to do that. Um, you know, every organization needs, uh, you know, a forcing function to take a hard look at its, the composition of its workforce. And, and as Ron rightly pointed out, this, this is exactly what, what is happening. The downside of this is if it's viewed by the bureaucracy as a cleaver cutting, you know, exercise uh, without much guidance about how we're going to actually do this. And, uh, you know, given some of the rhetoric that we hear from the Hill and from some portions of the Trump administration, you know, there are concerns within the bureaucracy that this will be, you know, not... Uh, something that increases morale and increases effectiveness of the federal government, but something that is uh, really uh, dampens morale and dampens effectiveness of the of the federal workplace. Um, and again, I agree completely with with Ron that if this is going to be successful, we need to have the professionals, the career professionals, you know, who know their business deeply involved in the development of the uh, composition of the federal workforce and not take a meat cleaver approach to it. I think that makes perfect sense. This is not just about cutting down the number of federal employees. Um, and so I would love to see those senior executives and even lower level staff people in the DC area here, there's so many federal workers and I've yet to come across one that says, oh, my agency works perfectly. There's nothing that we should change. You know, virtually everyone has all these stories of how ridiculous it is that they have to go through this procedure or why are they wasting money by doing the same thing twice or through this way that they don't think it should be done. And so it would be great to have an avenue through which employees and the managers could submit and say, this is, this is something that needs to be done, but my hands are currently tied because of whatever provision it is. And so that, you know, the Trump administration, his team can go in there and say, okay, what do we need to loosen up? How do we need to change the way that things work across the government and in particular agencies? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And so that's the hard thing is the government is huge. And in some places, you have to have rules that stretch across all agencies but I would hope that they would be able to allow some flexibility there so that the departments, the heads of the agencies, and then the managers can put things into place the way that they see best so that there isn't this waste and inefficiency and even abuse that's happening. Uh, Jason, this is Ron. Uh, real quick, uh, I, think, I think we've just identified sort of the uh, condition precedent to success, and that is to 
mobilize uh, career civil servants to he- uh, help identify those areas uh, and then and then deal with them. It's the deal with them part that, uh, that we may want to focus on now because um, uh, while I agree with the objective, I'm not sure the government um, at large has the tools to do this effectively. Most importantly, I think we all know that attrition is um, problematic when it comes to reducing the size of the workforce. It is a blunt instrument. Its sole purpose is to reduce the size, and it really doesn't get at programmatic cuts. And uh, yes, it is the least painful way to do it. It's the most humane way to do it. Uh, On the other hand, uh, there are going to be instances where attrition, which is largely random, uh, attrition, which is um, in many cases driven by your uh, the, by the employees that have the most marketable skills, the, the highest performers, the ones who leave and you end up with reverse uh, retention, that creates severe workforce imbalances. Uh, I know because I'm guilty of uh, helping to oversee that very thing in the early days of the peace dividend in DOD. We did everything by attrition. We ended up with skills imbalances that hampered the department for years uh, I do think um, we need to talk more about the tools that agencies need to really get this done. Absolutely. I agree. This is Rachel Greswell here. That brings up a good point um, about the attrition. It's certainly not the most efficient way to cut back on the workforce, but unfortunately it's one of the only or the easiest ways to do it because it's extremely difficult to fire federal employees on average, it takes a year and a half to go through the process of saying, I have an employee who's not producing what they should be, or maybe they've even done something you know, seriously wrong. And it's so difficult to fire those employees, the procedures that the managers have to go through and all the documentations and the legal hoops that they have to jump through makes it so difficult that they give up on it. And you end up having employees there that probably aren't doing too much. And then the rest of the workforce has to take over and do their job. And so something that they should be looking at here is a way to change, you know, the way that we hire and fire within the federal government to improve that and give managers a little more control. It's uh, funny you should mention that because Congress has just given DOD two tools that I think um, if I were an agency uh, chief human capital officer, I'd be asking for myself if I weren't in DOD. Uh, Tool number one, they've finally increased the amount of the voluntary separation incentive payment. It's been $25,000 before taxes since fiscal 93. Uh, I know. I was there. It's never been indexed. And what was a, uh, a an enticing carrot in 93 is not so much in 2017. DOD is now allowed to up that to 40K. Still not a huge amount, but uh, it's the kind of thing that would help departments sculpt their workforces to incent uh, surplus skill areas um, with, um, with more effectiveness than they can now. Uh, the flip side of that, and, and I'll use the, the dreaded um, R word, RIF, Congress has allowed DOD to make performance the most relevant um, factor in reduction in force, to give it the most weight. And um, we haven't seen the implementing rules yet. It's not clear how either of those tools are going to be used. But both of them, I think, provide more uh, the opportunity for more surgery here than just a blunt instrument of um, normal randomized attrition. 
So this is Neil uh, Miller. You know, in listening to this, one thing that strikes me is, first of all, I, I think the hiring freeze or a hiring freeze is, it, it always sounds good. It sounds like that's a first big step. But it's, I'm not sure any of the issues that we've all been identifying um, as being a problem or problematic about the way the government functions are in any way, shape, or form affected by freezing hiring or planned hiring in the federal government. Um, in general, we're talking about management issues. And I will say there was a discussion earlier that this would be great because now the, now the federal managers who manage these programs should be encouraged to um, figure out how to run their programs better. These federal people are not going to do anything without the not only the buy-in but the direction of the people at the political level. Typically, political level people, not without exception, but many political people come in and they spend their first six, eight, 10, 18 months trying to figure out how the agency actually functions and trying to get something done. And so not a lot changes. And um, not only that, they leave. They're there for a year. They're there for two years. Rarely do they stay the full four and even four years. If you think about an organization that needs major management reform and the top leadership is rotated in and out and in and out and in and out, you can understand why things don't, don't reform very quickly. And then I would just add that many of the burdensome regulations, the inefficient way of running things, has come about because something at some point somewhere along the line went wrong and federal people were blamed for it. So they instituted, they layered on, we'll get another line of approval, we'll do this, we'll do that to cushion ourselves or to make sure this never happens again. I, I've lived that experience in spades at the Department of Energy. So I think it's great. The, the hiring freeze gets everybody's attention. It's like cutting budgets. And I've certainly heard correctly, I think, people talk about it as a blunt instrument. But if you really want to do management reform, you really have to commit to that, the reform of the organization and the management of it. Um, and that's, that's you know, the hiring freeze is kind of not much there. Thanks, Neil, so much. I, I want to pick up on this, uh, this topic of the, uh, the political career interface and how that affects the ability of agencies to tackle uh, these big management challenges that, that we all recognize have been around for a long time. After this uh, last break and a word from our sponsor, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We're in the last segment of our program. Uh, and before uh, the break, we hit on perhaps what is the, the most important topic uh, in this whole conversation. You know, it's, it's clear that change and reform are coming to the government, both on the budgetary side, mission priorities perhaps, but also um, on the personnel side. And uh, at the end of the day, where the rubber meets the road is is how politicals, both on the Hill, but inside agencies representing the administration and career civil servants, 
uh, interact uh, will affect the ability to actually drive lasting change uh, in the government. And uh, Bill Valdez of the Senior Executives Association wanted to give you a chance to uh, speak to that issue. Well, it is the right issue to focus on. Um, and the career senior executives and the other career leaders in the federal government are the ones that are responsible for implementing whatever changes the uh, administration wishes or the Congress uh, wishes to impose upon the uh, federal government, the executive branch. And, you know, what typically happens, though, is uh, that the administration, you know, has its set of priorities, uh, which typically are oriented towards policy kinds of issues um, and uh, doesn't focus as heavily as it should on the management issues, the administration issues of the, uh, of the bureaucracy. And so you come to the question of whose responsibility ultimately is it to uh, implement the kinds of changes we've been talking about. And I think it's rightly within the realm of the career civil service. And, you know, the administration has come in saying we want a more effective uh, government. They don't know uh, largely how to affect that kind of change. So they're going to have to rely upon the career uh, leaders in the government to do so. Uh, one last comment. Uh, we've been talking about, you know, the budget cuts and the, uh, you know, hiring freeze. But I think what we really should be focusing on is not necessarily numbers, but what is the mission of the federal government and how is that mission effectively carried out? What is uh, the appropriate composition of the federal workforce, not what its size is, but what is its composition? What are the skill sets that we need to have to complete the mission that the agencies are, uh, are given? You know, Ron mentioned that we don't have necessarily the tools to do that kind of analysis right now. So it would behoove the administration to empower the career bureaucracy to develop those tools and use those kinds of tools to come up with the right composition and with the right uh, uh, administrative procedures and most effective and efficient administrative procedures that enable mission accomplishment. Um. Uh, Neil, uh, Neil Miller, curious about your thoughts on this uh, as you've been uh, both on the career side as well as a Senate-confirmed uh, political appointee. Um, I think that uh, the, the frustrating thing for people is when they look to the federal worker or the federal uh, permanent employees, look to leadership, as anybody in an organization does, for direction and find not so much direction as um, people who are just trying to make somebody else, in most cases, the White House happy. So it's less about, often less about sort of the longer term, how do we run this program better or how do we uh, conduct this mission better than it is about how do we um, make sure we're hitting our short-term goals. And so for the federal people, certainly the Department of Energy, and I'm sure it exists at other agencies, you eventually see an, a mentality that, that's called WIBI, 
we would be here before you got here. We'd be here after you leave. And the problem with that is you're not going to get much change that way. You're not going to get any buy-in. I think you have to have um, from the beginning this sense that, as Bill said, we know what the mission of the federal government is, and it's it's there, and there is one. And and for those programs that are going on that uh, we don't think are appropriate, we, we you know we're going to design an exit strategy so that we can plow our resources back into the stuff we we can, should, and need to be doing. Um, I think you have to have that, and I think you have to have a concerted effort to figure out how to make it run better. I I would just caution again, blunt instruments are the things that are most likely to cause a rift almost immediately between the um, between the political folks and the career folks. And once you've done that, you're going to get nothing done. So, Jason, uh, this is Ron. I, um, uh, I'm a glass-half-full person, and uh, when I look at the, uh, the cabinet officials that uh, the president has nominated, and in some cases they've been confirmed, uh, uh, people like General Mattis and General Kelly and, uh, and, uh, are, uh, I, I think our soon to be new Secretary of State. He may have been, uh, confirmed last night. Uh, there's a, there's a common thread, uh, amongst, uh, many, if not most of them, and that is that they have led, successfully led, large, complex organizations. So my, my hope, um, is that, and belief, is that if you've got somebody who's done that, they know instinctively, that you've got to engage and mobilize your workforce if you want to succeed. And um, so, you know, proof is in the pudding. Actions speak louder than words. But um, I, I, uh, I, I know the reputation of General Mattis. I know the reputation of General Kelly. Uh, we, you know, as we see some of these other nominees, I hope we see a similar sort of biography because they get it. Uh, they get it. They've successfully led very large, very complex organizations. They know what it is to mobilize the troops. And I think, as Bill suggested, in this case, mobilize is uh, engaging them, getting their insights and their ideas, making sure they don't become an insurgency, but that they become an ally in uh, getting at what I think just about everybody in government, political and career, wants. And that's a smarter, more efficient, more effective federal government. Uh, I will I will argue, though, that the freeze is effective in terms of getting the attention of the bureaucracy. Uh, you need an action-forcing event. As I said earlier, I really like the carrot-and-stick approach. You're frozen until you can give me a plan that shows how we're going to work our way through it. Uh, I, I would argue for more tools than just attrition in order uh, to do that, but I think uh, you need the action-forcing event. I, I'm a you know, 40-year bureaucrat, and I've seen what it takes to get the bureaucracy to move, and it takes uh, an incentive. And in this case, the incentive is uh, lifting of the freeze and moving forward with the plan that everybody has approved. What I do hope is that the people who review the plan, OPM and OMB, uh, I think it's primarily the latter, make sure those plans um, are top-notch, that they look at things programmatically, they look at cutting duplicative programs, they cut the right stuff and not the wrong stuff. Uh, I think so much will depend on the rigor of that review um, because it will send a signal to the uh, career bureaucracy that uh, this administration is serious about going after the right things uh, as we move forward. Um, Ron, I, I'm, this is Neil. I, I'm an ex-OMBer or former OMBer two times, and I couldn't agree with you more about uh, needing to get people's attention 
as I said early in my career, I, I learned the um, I learned the line that if you want to get people's attention, cut their budget, and it certainly does get people's attention. Um, but as you point out, you have to be ready to follow through with something. And and so I would I would add two things, and I like to think of myself as a glass half full person too. But I think it's great that we we have a lot of admirable people. Um, uh, nominated and starting to get confirmed as the heads of agencies. But in fact, those people are going to get captured pretty quickly in the kinds of jobs that um, people expect the the cabinet level officers or the agency heads to be doing, a lot of which is outside the agency. In fact, most of which is outside the agency. Um, most of them are not going to be spending the day at their desk running the agency. Um, the people who will be doing that and who will be effectively dealing constantly with the federal staff will be people at the assistant secretary and undersecretary level. And you know as well as I do, it's a rare thing for a secretary to be able to, to choose all those people um, herself or himself. So that's really where the the reality is going to hit. I would just add one more thing as far as rigor of, of the review of what to change or what to cut um, or what to kill. Um and that is getting us back to where we started, I think. And and if this is not done in conjunction with people on Capitol Hill, then there will be lots of great proposals to reform the bureaucracy that will die uh, a death many times over because it turns out you cut the thing that someone is the head of the congressional caucus on or the plane that is manufactured in four key people's districts or whatever. So it's more than just on one side, although it really feels good to write a good plan. It's absolutely critical that that be done hand-in-hand hand with people on the Hill. Thank you, Neil. Uh, Rachel Gessler, do we still have you on the line? Wanted to get yes. the last thoughts from you before we uh, close out the program in about a minute here. I just wanted to bring up here that one way, maybe you discussed it earlier, but in transforming the federal workforce, something that would be a big tool moving forward is the way that we compensate federal employees. And so there are lots of studies that say on average federal employees receive, you know, anywhere from 15 to 50 percent higher compensation, but a lot of that compensation isn't in their salary that they're getting. And so a lot of it is tied up in retirement benefits, other things that younger generations don't value as much as they're just entering the workforce. And so I think if we can look at the way that we compensate the federal employees and give some more room there to maybe get rid of some of those defined benefit pensions that we're doing, you know, federal employees on average get 18% of their pay in a retirement plan. That's not as valuable to a 22-year-old just coming out of college as a higher paycheck would be. And so if we can try and compensate federal employees more like they are in the private sector, we can compete more with them and we can attract more talented um, employees to the federal government. And I think that would do a lot to transforming the way that the government works for the people. Thanks, Rachel. I know that that's going to certainly be a hot topic for conversation on the Hill uh, as these conversations move forward. Uh, that's all the time we have uh, for Fed Talk this morning. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our guests. Um, the Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm, Ms. Shaw Bransford and Roth. Have a great Friday.